Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahna Saqqani. In this excellent, expansive book, Rebellious Wives, Neglectful Husbands, Controversies in Modern Quranic Commentaries, Hadiyah Mubarak explores the many different interpretations of four Quranic verses. For 128 on Nash's or Neglectful Husbands, 434 on Nash's or Rebellious Wives, 4.3 on Polygyny, and 2.28 of Chapter 2 Al-Baqarah on Divorce. She does this through a careful examination of four of the most influential Arab male Sunni Quranic commentators of the 20th century, namely Sayyid Qutb, Muhammad Abduhu, Rashid Rida, and Ibn Ashur. She also compares their interpretations with several medieval pre-modern commentators from the 9th to the 14th centuries. A part of Mubarak's conclusion is that interpretations of the Qur'an cannot simplistically be reduced to a monolithic assessment like either patriarchal or feminist, but that they are an evolving complex engagement with phenomena such as colonialism, nationalism, modernity, and even the commentator's own personal background. In our conversation today, we discuss the individual modern exegetes on whom this study centers, their specific interpretations of the four verses, the unique ways in which they all depart from their predecessors' interpretations of these verses, and the limits of the current genre of tafsir studies. For example, must we keep defining tafsir in such a way that it justifies our exclusion of scholars, scholarly interpretations of the Qur'an provided by those who have not written a complete commentary of the Qur'an? We also discuss whether the specific interpretations of the four verses are indeed diverse, and if so, what exactly are those nuances that express diversity? This here is my conversation with Hadiyah Mubarak. Salam Hadiyah. Hi, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your wonderful book, Rebellious Wives, Neglectful Husbands, Controversies in Modern Quranic Commentaries, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed and am so grateful it exists. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to discuss the book with you today. Yeah. So it is our tradition on the podcast to ask our authors to tell us a little bit about their intellectual journey. What brought you here? How did you get here? So that's an interesting question. I, I'm a, you know, hyphenated American. I'm an Arab American. Uh, you know, obviously, um, I'm also a Muslim American. And um, I think... Let me try to make this as concise as possible. Um, you know, when I was in undergraduate school, uh, I was at Florida State University. Uh, sophomore year is when 9-11 happened. And it raised a lot of questions. I think, you know, it for, for myself, for many of my peers, it was a time of confusion. Uh, we were also, as people who were visibly Muslim at the time and very active with the Muslim Students Association, we were sort of, at, you know, expected to answer a lot of questions that frankly, I couldn't answer, you know, as a sophomore in college about, you know, about my religious tradition, about, um, you know, what happened on that horrific day of 9-11. And I think really it was that moment and that experience that kind of set me off on a trajectory to then do a PhD in Islamic studies. Obviously, you know, it wasn't uh, immediate, but really in, in, in hindsight, I think it was that experience of having to speak up on behalf of my faith and represent, you know, my faith to to people and answer questions that I really at the time could not answer. Um, I think that really is what set me off on a, on a trajectory to do um you know, Islamic studies, although I didn't initially start off with Islamic studies when I finished my 
uh, bachelor's degree in 2003. I then went and did my master's in contemporary Arab studies at Georgetown University. And I wanted to focus on comparative politics of the Middle East. Again, you know, sort of this, um, it, it was this attempt to just, you know, find answers for a lot of questions I had. But as I was doing my master's degree, I really discovered my passion for women and gender issues. And I did my MA thesis on gender reform in Jordan and the politicization of gender reform. And I began to realize that any discussion on women and gender in the Arab world really had to engage with Islam and the Muslim tradition. And so that really then led me to do a PhD. I started in 2007. Uh, to do a PhD in Islamic studies with a focus on women and gender in in the Quran and specifically in Quranic commentaries. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. So tell us now about the book. Why, why now? Why did you write it? Yeah, I mean, you know, so again, I'm going to try to make this as concise as possible because there's so many, um, so many life experiences I can mention that, you know, so as a as a Muslim woman, I always grew up believing that Islam at its heart is a, you know, empowering religion for women. But at the same time, while I believe this in my heart, I, I, I witnessed, um, you know, I guess I can say I witnessed incidents and experiences and, you know, traveled throughout the Muslim world where I found a very different reality, um, a sort of, you know, patriarchy of sorts that sometimes was um, justified through references to religious texts. And I can say that this has been sort of like a lifelong journey for me until this very day, right, of, you know, I recently came back from Saudi Arabia, I was there for Umrah, uh, where I engaged directly with the guards, you know, with the security guards about their interpretation of allowing women, you know, to visit graves, etc., and I had a, 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 a you know, I, I would, alhamdulillah, I'm privileged that I can speak Arabic and I, and I sort of, you know, engage with them and I um, argued with them. And then I was really pleasantly surprised to find a group of women standing there listening. And then they told me, you know, you're very brave. And I said, no, you know, I'm not brave. This is something we all, you know, have a right to as Muslim women. You know, we have the right to um, <clears throat> represent ourselves and represent what re- Islam really means to us. And so I, I think, you know, what's at the heart of this book, and I, I because this was my first academic book, I think I didn't really say in it everything I wanted to say, but, um, you know, hopefully in the second book I will, but in this podcast, I can say some of those things that maybe I didn't say in the book that I would have wanted to say, which is that this is really, I'm hoping, provides a window of hope for women who do not want to who, who do not view faith and feminism as two mutually exclusive pursuits, right? That it's either, you know, um, either, you, you know, you leave religion altogether because you just find it to be um, uh, disempowering to women or patriarchal or privileging men, or on the other hand, that you, you know, um, if, if you are uh, devoted to Islam that you, you know, you sort of have to be like this submiss, you know, you have to submit to this, to, to the, you know, the patriarchal hegemony that exists in many parts of the Muslim world. And so uh, part of the goal, I guess, for me personally, in, in doing this and writing this book was to show the Muslim tradition itself as very pluralistic, as evolving, as providing room um, really discursive space for different interpretations. And that, you know, there is a one generation of Muslims, for example, that has any sort of monopoly over what the Quran means, 
Thank you. Thank you for that. Because that's that's like my lifelong battle also to constantly remind people that the fact that there's all of these disagreements, the fact that we've got, you know, tafsirs in every generation and multiple of them should, you know, be a reminder in itself that you can, we, we have to keep on engaging with the Quran. What what do you see as the book's main contributions to Islamic studies or and or women's and gender studies and or religious studies? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think really um, the contribution is, uh, you know, on one level in tafsir studies itself, um, kind of really centering the genre of tafsir as a field of Quranic commentaries. Uh, currently, you know, in the year 2023, the, the, the field of tafsir studies has grown a, a little bit more in the West, but it's still a sort of, um, you know, smaller um it's, sort, it's still sort of a growing field, if you will, uh, in, in, in contrast to Quranic studies or Islamic studies. Um, I think there have been a lot of uh, very important works that have engaged, um, you know, have engaged with women and gender in the Quran through the lens of tafsir, such as Aisha Chowdhury's book, you know, Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition, as well as um, Johanna Pink's works, many of her works, including a modern Quranic interpretation, and of course Karen Bauer's uh, books. Uh, one of which, uh, one of which I, I I engage a lot with in the book in my book is um, Karen Bauer's book on gender hierarchy in the Quran. Um, at the same time, I think there um, we really actually. Uh, you know, as as scholars uh, who are engaged with women and gender in the Quran, I think there still is room uh, for a lot more research uh, on tafsir in specific. And what I'm hoping is that engagement with tafsir sort of, as I mentioned, you know, in my conclusion, kind of opens up the gateway to its inner mechanics. Like, what is tafsir exactly? How does it work? How does interpretive authority work? How do scholars um, sometimes reject you know, very dominant interpretations in in the genre or um, modify interpretations while also anchoring their authority in this tradition. That was one of the, you know, the main objectives of of the book. And then the second uh, contributions, or I should say contribution, the second contribution is also just situating exegetes within their historical context, specifically in this case, the four modern Mufassirin um, exegetes that I look at, um, Muhammad Abdo, Rashid Rida, Sayyid Qutb, and Muhammad Al-Tahir ibn Ashur. And, um, you know, recognizing that uh, exegetes are engaging not only with the Quran as a text, but they're also engaging with their context. So what they choose to prioritize, you know, what they choose to uh, focus on is oftentimes a conversation with, you know, broader debates happening in their societies. And that's what I try to sort of pinpoint throughout the book, uh, which I hope is, is, is uh, you know, an important contribution to the field is just kind of understanding commentaries as a dialectic if you, of sorts, if you will. Well, thank you for introducing the four uh, exegetes because I was going to add my next question was going to be precisely on them. We have uh, Abduhu and Rida. They are, you know, often treated as one just because they share this commentary. But the differences between them are so interesting. We assume for, we, we assume that history and progress are linear. And so this generation is going to be more progressive than the previous generation and so on. Right. But here you have Rida, who is a lot more conservative in his approaches to gender and sexuality and women's issues than his mentor, um, who's a lot more gentler. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the earliest is Muhammad al-Tahir, uh, sorry, no, the earliest is Muhammad Abdo, sorry, who dies in 1905, and then his disciple Rashid Rida, who dies in 1935. And I'm, I'm glad you noted that, because actually, as you know, a lot of scholars who are engaging with Tafsir al-Manar either sort of attribute 
all the opinions to one of the two authors. You know, they either say like Rashid Rada says or Muhammad Abdo. Um, it is possible uh, to actually distinguish between their writing, at least obviously up till verse like 4125 or 4126. After that, it's all Rashid Rada. Uh, and by coincidence, uh, the four verses I'm looking at are all before 4125. But um so they are actually both contributing to that. And uh, so before, again, the first kind of third of that commentary it are both authors. And Rashid Rida, he is the main editor, and he will say things like, you know, قَالَ الْأُسْتَادِ الْإِمَامِ the, 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 the teacher, al-ustad is the teacher, al-imam, you know, the, the, the leader, religious leader, um, said, right? And then he actually notes in his commentary also, he says it is at this point that Abdo has passed away, and he says, you know, God, may God, um, <clears throat> you know, have mercy on his soul, you know, kind of praise for him in the commentary itself. Um, and so I started to pay attention to these really important distinctions. And as you know, you know, Rashid Rada actually, um, e even ideologically, I actually frame him differently. I decided to frame him really more as a reformed Salafi. Um, and he does sort of... Uh, gravitate more towards Salafism towards the end of his life because of the rise of Salafism at that time in the various parts of the Muslim world in which he's traveling. Um, and he obviously has an influence on this, an impact on this. Um, whereas Muhammad Abdo is really more of a modernist, uh, Islamic uh, modernist. And this influences the way they engage with the Quranic commentary. It's considered the first modern modernist commentary of the Quran in the sense that they're also engaging with very relevant social, political, even scientific issues, right? You have, so it's it's this really interesting Quranic commentary that's engaging, you know, Western historic, you know, scholars of history. And, you know, and, and then you see that trend kind of continue with Sayyid Qutb, who uh, dies in 1966, if I remember um, correctly, he's actually executed by uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser in in Egypt, and most of his commentary is written during his intermittent impris imprisonment in Egypt, which is significant. Um, you know, there are obviously uh, other works uh, such as William Shepard, for example, who looks at uh, Sayyid Qutb's gradual radicalization in prison. And so I look a lot at the impact of his ideology, um, you know, specifically this notion of um, jahiliyyah, you know, of, of, of all most Muslim societies as being um, what he labels as jahili. Really, jahili means ignorant, but it's also referring to a time period prior to Islam. Um <clears throat> And uh, just to kind of move on, uh, the the fourth commentator I look at is Muhammad Al-Tahir ibn Ashur, who is a neo-traditionalist. Um, oh, sorry, one thing I will say about Sayyid Khutub is he starts out his uh, career as a literary critic. And I think this is what I argue is one of the most important contributions of his exegesis is really not the political ideology. It's, it's the literary contributions that he makes of looking at you know, the musical rhythms within the Quran of looking at, you know, um, uh, just looking at the Quran thematically. So his exegesis is unique for various reasons. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the last scholar whose work I examined is a neo-traditionalist. He was a Grand Mufti of Tunisia, very grounded and well-trained in the um, scholastic traditions, unlike Rashid Rida and Sayyid Qutb. You know, he is an, he's an alim, the proper 
uh, meaning of the term, right? And um, so one of the reasons I look at these four in specific is because each one of them represents a unique intellectual orientation in modern Muslim thought. So you have a, a modernist, a reformed Salafi, a neo-traditionalist, and an Islamist who is, you know, uh, Sayyid Qutb beca- becomes sort of the spokesperson for the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And um, their ideological orientation impacts the way they, uh, you know, interpret the Quran, the way that the, the methods that they use in their exegesis, um, the way they engage with the Islamic tradition altogether. You know, for example, um, Ibn Ashur, as I point out in various places, uh, as a as a, a scholar who's sort of a heavyweight, if you will, in the fields of like linguistics and Maniki law, very much kind of brings those disciplines to the forefront of his exegesis. Whereas, you know, with Sayyid Qutb, in some aspects of his uh, commentary, not all of it, right, it's, it becomes very kind of heavy on the ideology, on this idea of, you know, rejecting what he calls, you know, jahiliya and all, all sorts of... Um, you know, forces that, in his mind, um, are anti-God, if you will, right? And this sort of like his diagnosis of modernity altogether. So you 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 kind of see how he interprets the Quran through that lens. Um, yeah. So I, I hope this helps to some extent. It helps very much. Um, and and a great segue into my next question, which was that I so I especially benefited from your introduction to Qutb. Um, I. I still don't like him any more than I did previously, but I I, I like how you challenge the idea that Qutb's issues with the with the West were more moral, um, and you argue instead that they were more political. Um, and I found that very enlightening for myself because most of the stuff that we come across it and and the stuff that I've read of his also just appears so so moral, right? The moral judgments he <laughs> makes against the U.S., for example. But um, so I'd love to hear more about that. I'd love for our readers to hear more about that too. Yeah, I'm really glad you picked up on that because I, I I do think that in some ways, although this wasn't the purpose of the book, that it sort of offered a revision of of Qutb and understanding his personal trajectory and his um, own intellectual development. And you know, most biographies of Qutb sort of pinpoint his two year trip to the U.S. as a turning point uh, in his um, in his political stance, and that you know he sort of. Uh, becomes anti-West after this, and and uh, you know some uh, of his biographers will say this has to do with you know uh, the fact that the creation uh, the creation of the nation state of Israel and the United States support for it. Um, what I argue, and you know, and and one of the contentions I had was a lot of the especially contemporary depictions of Qutb, especially in the post nine eleven period, sort of depict him as this, you know, uh, ira- yeah, as, as having this irrational hatred, you know, of the West in, in a very, um, in a way that very much, much fits the way we think of an, a fundamentalist, right? But if we were to be fair and actually very carefully examine his writings during that period, and especially actually his writings during that two-year period when he lived in the United States, um, so he was in the, in the United States between, uh, I believe, 1946 and 1948. And obviously, it is obviously at this time that, you know, the West adopts a new position towards the Middle East with the creation of the nation state of Israel. So yes, all of that is is accurate. But I what I what I noticed in some of his writings, because he's actively writing articles in um, an Egyptian literary magazine at the time uh, called Arisada. 
is that he views, first of all, he experiences as a darker-skinned Arab in, in the United States uh, firsthand what anti-Black racism is. Um, he speaks about it um, in, in, in um, many parts of his writing, many aspects of his writing. Uh, I didn't mention all of them in the book, but, you know, there's this... Um, he talks about in his hotel that there was a, uh, you know, a, a black man who worked there, I think, as a waiter and how he opened up to Qutb and his uh, other Egyptian roommate and told them about his experiences. And so Qutb begins to link anti-black racism in the United States with in, with basically Western imperialism in the Arab world. Um, you know, for example, he writes an article that he titles after right after he returns from the United States to Egypt. He titles it, Our First Enemy is the White Man. And he speaks about how <clears throat> uh, that America's interest in deterring European imperialism is not to empower the Arab world, but to place their feet over our necks, right? And obviously, I was reading this at the time that, you know, the George Floyd, um, you know, horrific, um, you know, crime had happened where, you know, if you re- if you recall that, it was very vivid in my mind as I'm reading Qutb's writing, right? And his ability to make these connections that Black intellectuals, you know, in the recent years have been making people like Cornell West, right, to kind of see these connections between oppression in the United States and the way uh, hegemonic powers have treated people of color in other parts of the world. And so what I argue that it was this experience with racism, in, in addition to obviously a lot of the foreign policy happening, obviously, you know, the United States support of of the creation of, of Israel, all of that. Uh, but it wasn't this, you know, led him to, again, develop these anti-Western views. But I don't think it was this, this simple function of this irrational and religiously motivated hatred of the U.S., as some of his um, biographers had, had, I think, you know, wrongly or inaccurately described. Yeah, and it came through very well in, in your discussion of him. So... Ibn Ashur, who is very, very, very highly underrated and and his tafsir severely understudied. And I was thinking the whole time, given how unique his interpretations are and how really so woman friendly they are. um, And and so I was like, oh, this is this is to our detriment that, you know, we're not engaging with him as much. Why do you think there's such a lack of engagement with him? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, question and observation is that, you know, there hasn't been much engagement, at least in Western literature, on Ibn Ashur. And, you know, perhaps because his methods would make us assume that this is sort of a very classical text and, you know, that we're not going to find, you know, new um, contributions in terms of, you know, interpretation, in terms of insights and sort of gems that he brings forth. I think um, recently there has been a little bit more interest in Ibn Ashur. I know um, Jibril Fuad Haddad uh, recently wrote an article on him in the Journal of Quranic Studies. I know Samuel Ross, I believe, is also engaging with his work in his book, uh, looking at the at least forthcoming book, looking at the Bible and the Quran in the Bible as sort of a, a, a source of, of Quranic commentary. Um, so, you know, he is this interesting person who... Um, I, one of the one of his biographers that I engage is Bashir Nafe, who describes him really well as someone who sort of um, 
it fluctuates, right? Like he, between, you know, traditionalism, you know, especially in his methods, uh, and also, um, let me see if I can find the exact quote where uh, I probably won't find it actually, but it, he Nafra says it really well in, in the sense that he's someone who is an enigma of sorts because he's, you know, grounded in these really classical methods. When you read his work, it's, it's a, it's a very dense academic work, um, but at the same time, you know, if we if we read carefully, he's in many ways um, countering a lot of dominant interpretations. You know, one of which I mentioned is with new shoes, right? You know, you have uh, for the most part both classical and modern commentators interpreting this word in very gendered ways. So, like the way new shoes would manifest for women is one thing, and the way it would manifest for men would look differently. Whereas he's like, no, this is, uh, you know, hatred, like men and women are equally capable of, of uh, and especially spouses of hating the other and acting in very hateful ways. Right. And I really appreciated that about him. I appreciated his just sort of like common sense that I felt he brought to his interpretations, um, especially I know, um, you know, uh, we talked briefly about 4120A, uh, which is, you know, really looking at men's new shoes, where uh, when I came across his interpretation, I just found it so refreshing to find someone who says, you know, why should a wife be the one if, if you know, if her husband is guilty of new shoes, however, we, however we want to translate or interpret that word, right? But it's clearly something that's not good, <laughs> whatever it is, whatever new shoes is, is, the Quran makes it very clear, it's a bad thing. <laughs> so whatever bad thing this husband is guilty of, why is a wife being asked to like pay the price of reconciling that she should somehow forego some of her rights and he just brings this like logic and uh, he's very legal minded uh, and he he's very much fo- he focuses on language which I I appreciate as someone who just you know I consider myself a grammar nerd of sorts um, in, in both for both Arabic and English and um, I really just appreciated this very refreshing voice um, that he brought in many of his interpretations. Oh, yeah, it was so refreshing. Well, since we just started talking about the verses, I, I was going to ask you about um, some common differences that we see in the in, in the ways that scholars, that pre-modern scholars engage these Quranic verses um, versus the way that contemporary or modern ones do. Um, but I think it'll just come up in the next few questions anyway. So let's talk about the specific verses. So we'll begin with 434. Um, and the main contested terms are we've got Qawwam, we've got Nushuz, um, Qanitat. Qanitat, I believe, is one of yeah, the obedience one. Um, and so what are, how are these scholars, um, any of the ones you want to think about, but especially since we've mentioned that um, Ibn Ashur offers unique interpretations of these verses, how are the modern ones, you know, departing from, if at all, um, the pre-modern folks? And what what does Wadrabuhunna mean? What does, you know, Qawwa mean? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So one of the things I try to do i i i know i don't spend as much time as um as i do in another article where i called breaking the interpretive monopoly where i sort of um try to trace chronologically the development of uh, the way scholars are interpreting that phrase but i do um you know want to point out to listeners that even in the pre-modern tradition um you know there there is a sort of development of the way this term is being interpreted um, in the sense that, you know, for example, the 10th century uh, exegete of Tabari uh, kind of confines it to, you know, the legal, the, the legal realm, if you will, right? That 
you know, the husband has uh, some sort of authority and, and he sees it mainly as, uh, to be very frank, uh, a man's right to have sexual access to his wife, right? Which is interesting because then he sees Nushu's as a, a wife's, you know, just refusal, adamant refusal to sleep with her husband. Uh, although they obviously give other interpretations, most of these um, scholars, especially in the early period, are very uh, polyvalent in their interpretations in the sense that they they give several possibilities. Um, so they recognize uh, the capacity of the Quran to carry, you know, uh, pluralistic or uh, possible meanings. And then they will often, you know, champion one of the meanings. Uh, one thing I find uh, among the pre-modern exegetes, which is very much aligns with Karen Bauer's finding, is that around the 12th century in the Gregorian era, um, that um, as exegetes try to answer this question, why, you know, like, why are men qawamun, you sort of move away from a, it, it sort of broadens the scope of what this word means. And in my personal assessment, it also just lends itself to a more subjective analysis, right? Where all of these things in the Muslim tradition, some of them are just, you know, so, so they'll point to like legal privileges and then retroactively say, this is why men are qawamun, or this is why men have a degree over women, right? Or they'll point to, you know, things, uh, circumstances, circumstances in their own milieu, you know, the fact that most writers or intellectuals happen to be men, or even to biological um, features, like men have beards, right? And then use all of these things to say, this is why, right? But what's interesting is that the Quran doesn't give us those reasons besides the fact that it says, you know, men are qawamun over women with what God has favored some over others. And this is gender neutral and with what men spend of their wealth. Um, so in terms to answer your question, uh, one of the things that I found uh, modern exegetes, uh, one of the shifts, I guess I can say, is that this notion of um, that this that qawamun obliges female obedience. I didn't see an emphasis or see even mentioned among the modern mufassirin. I did, however, they uh, at least two of them did mention it when it came to new shoes, this idea of asiyan or disobedience. Um, but in contrast to some of the pre-modern exegetes, there was less emphasis on this notion of female obedience to the husband. Um and then when it comes to Nushu's, um, it was also really interesting. Uh, Sayyid Qutb's interpretation of Nushu's is kind of st stood out to me because um, he starts to engage with psychology. And, you know, he says it's sort of the psychological perversion. It's not this, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a, um, it's an abnormal, very deviant situation. And, you know, you're sort of like wondering what exactly is it, right? Because it's still very vague. Um, but uh, Muhammad Al-Tahir ibn Ashur, um, you know, again, as I mentioned, he was one of the only exegetes of the ones that I examined, at least, um, that had this very gender neutral interpretation of Nushu's uh, for both men and women. Um, the other thing that stood out in his exegesis in specific was this idea that Nushu's is something very serious. And he says it's not just a, simp a simple matter of one spouse being upset at the other. He said, because this is a very, you know, again, he's a very commonsensical um, scholar. And he says, you know, that is a very common situation where 
the husband's mad at his wife and the wife is mad at her husband. Uh, and again, I appreciated that notion that Nushu's isn't just um, the husband being angry at his wife, because if that's the case, it's extremely dangerous, right? I mean, if we're to talk about, uh, I think it's, I, I will just want to say one thing. I think it's very important, obviously, for us to separate Muslim behavior from text. I think that's something that um, we you know, we tend to do, I think it's, it's, uh, I, I think we tend to do this in a way that is sort of internalized Islamophobia, maybe, um, you know, where we sort of blame Muslim religious texts for Muslim behavior. So I do want to distinguish which, between these two things. At the same time, uh, one has to disarm uh, potential abusers from using religious references or using or weaponizing religious texts. So while it is important that we 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 do we um hold humans' behavior for uh sorry that we hold humans responsible for for their behavior uh rather than text um at the same time you know I I, I think we need to be real in terms of the stakes of what does it mean when we say that Nushuz is simply a wife disobeying her husband? That's that's extremely dangerous, right? Um, whereas even some exegetes were, would say, some of the pre-modern exegetes I came across would say things like, some indicators of a woman's Nushuz is that she used to smile when he would come into the house and she no longer smiles, or she used to stand up when her husband entered the house and she no longer stands up. And, you know, maybe to give them the benefit of the doubt, like they, I, I don't know what they meant with that, but that can be really, really dangerous because again, it's it's then this idea that a woman is, is Nash's that then allows for these three disciplinary steps, right? Which has, uh, the last of which has consumed a lot of our attention and uh, 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 attention more than just attention, I guess, the moral grappling, if you will. But uh, I just want to say one thing about Ibn Ashur. Um, he he does mention that Nushuz is, is is a serious thing and sort of indicates that it's cases of Nushuz really should be brought forth to the legal authorities rather than, you know, the husband trying to ascertain by himself whether or not his wife is um, guilty of Nushuz. In other words, the audience of this verse is not your average man. Um, but the legal authorities need to be involved here. And I really appreciated that, um, you know, when, when you're discussing it, when you're talking about Amina Wadud's, um, the the thing that she's been attacked so much for, for saying, I'm going to say, a I'm going to say no to a literal application of the text, which as you and many others have pointed out, scholars have done this a lot throughout history, right? And it, we haven't held them against, we haven't held their um, decision there against them, but we're doing it again. Like, I mean, I would just get so much um, nonsense for, for, for saying that. Uh, oh, my favorite one. So I liked the hate translate, hate interpretation. The, of course, the disobedience is a common one. And then the one where if your if your wife invites a man to your bed that you do not like. And I'm thinking, wait, so if if a woman invites a man that you do like to her bed, is that OK? <laughs> right. Like the, these technical things. And it's just I mean, you know, ultimately, it's some kind of a marital some something, some source of disharmony in the marriage is idea. But um yeah, but the, the hatred one just really made me laugh because if she's not, if she if she doesn't like you anymore, if she hates you, then what, how does hating her accomplish anything? And and to be fair, all of them are saying 
um, or at least all of the ones that you're engaging here are saying, don't do it. You know, it's not, it's better that you not do it. And even some of the pre-modern ones um, say no, but I just, to me, there's still such a lack of diversity other than what Imran Shud is saying, because it's like, hey, um, you shouldn't hit your wife. Um, it's not good to hit your wife. And here's a hadith that says you, it's not good to do it, but you can. And then the, the, the nuance is in the complexities are more in the details of the hitting. Can you hit her? Is, is it a, is it a step-by-step? Um, was it Qutub who says you can do it? You don't have, you can just skip the steps. You can like skip the advising and then just get to the, <laughs> to the hitting. Yeah. I mean, I think something you point out that is worth mentioning um, also in terms of new shoes, you know, what does it mean for a wife to be guilty of new shoes? Um, while some of them, you know, some of the pre-modern exegetes make it something as simple as, you know, disobedience, which again, I think is very problematic and can be very dangerous. Um, there are indications from a prophetic hadith that like, you know, I, I guess along the lines of what Ibn Ashur is saying, that it's something quite serious, uh, that perhaps it's some sort of uh, sexual you know, not not quite quite zina, right? Because you know, which would be kind of uh, adultery, if you will, but some sort of sexual infidelity, right? Um, then something something quite serious. Um, and it's interesting because even with other um, interpretations of it, specifically a tabari here, I'm thinking of it's see it's 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 you know, if I had more time to to really dwell on it, I think that is an interesting interpretation to consider because for someone like al-Tabari, it's really like the wife is refusing to sleep with her husband, which he considers to be a sexual, uh, uh, sorry, a legal right within the marriage. And so um, if if the shoes is in fact that the wife is interested in someone else or some sort of, you know, sexual infidelity, there's sort of a link there, right? That is, there's, it's, 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 it's interesting, you know, that that's perhaps why she doesn't want to be with her husband, right? Or intimate with her husband. But anyway, that's a whole, the whole different topic. Um, but I, I think, I think, yes, you're absolutely right that Amna Wadud um, has her, a lot of her scholarship, I think has been, um, unfairly criticized because of the fact that she's you know seen through like you know one simple incident that happened and regardless of um, you know one's views on it I think one should be fair in terms of assessing her scholarship and so uh, there though at the same time I think there was probably just some ambiguity Uh, I remember my own advisor um, you know who is not really interested in women and gender in the Quran um, at Georgetown was sort of like felt that that was a little bit ambiguous what she meant by saying no uh, but I think you are correct to point out that you know obviously um she is not the first to say to say no to a literal impl- 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 implementation of the passage that's exactly what she had said right and so um in fact my findings of most of the both pre-modern and modern Quranic exegesis is reflects that scholars had this sort of hermeneutic tension and conscientious wrestling with what does this mean? And so you had scholars early on, even from the 8th century, uh, Gregorian period, saying, you know, that uh, a, a man should not hit his wife, uh, that the that the old, he can, you know, be upset with her, and that this imperative here, although grammatically, and, and there are many cases in the Quran, by the way, where the grammar does not correspond with the meaning. So it may appear that something is um, a an imperative, but it's not in meaning. 
Um, and I, I think that legal uh, linguistic sophistication is really important to kind of bring back to the Quran. I think that's unfortunately, um, especially Muslims, I would say, are sometimes uh, guilty of reading the Quran in very sort of simple simplistic ways um, that betray the kind of a legal sophistication that scholars traditionally brought to understanding the Quran's words. Um, and then, as I mentioned in the book as well, there were two other scholars uh, who um, argued that it is really, uh, you know, preferable that a husband never hit his wife, even if, even if this verse appears to give some sort of leeway, whether it's with a handkerchief or, you know, a non-injurious hitting, whatever, you know, you're obviously familiar with all that, with all of that uh, language, all that terminology, they said, you know, based on prophetic precedent, um, really a husband should not hit his wife, even if she is guilty of new shoes. Um, and I think Ibn Ashtur really took this the farthest, not only by, you know, um, again, relying on both prophetic precedent and on the opinion of Alta ibn Abi Rabah, who was this, you know, um, 8th century scholar from the Gregorian period, 2nd century Muslim scholar. Um, he also uses this sort of linguistic analysis to say that perhaps the husbands are not the ones being addressed in this verse. When the Quran says, uh, I'm just going to quote it in Arabic, nushuzahunna. So there's this embedded pronoun um, saying those whose nushuz you fear. So who is this you here? Is it speaking to the husbands or is it speaking to someone else? And he uses uh, Zamakhshari, who was like this 12th century linguistic uh, giant in tafsir, to say sometimes the Quran in one verse can shift who it's speaking to. And he brings several examples that, you know, here's a verse where the Quran is first speaking to the prophet and then it's speaking to all the readers or it's speaking to, you know. So he makes the argument that um, although it may start out speaking to the husbands, that it then shifts to speak to the legal authorities. Again, because he views the shoes as something serious, not something that needs to, um, you know, that, that the husband and wife should try to resolve um, by themselves, that they should take this to the courts. And he also notes that hitting is a very dangerous matter. And he says, especially to allow a husband to hit his wife while he's angry, he says, opens the doors to abuse. Because if you're angry and you're given license to hit someone, um, he said, it's very likely that you are going to exceed the boundaries, you know, that you're going to sort of, if you will, just, uh, what what's the word, the term I'm looking for, you know, you, uh, let it out kind of thing, right? You're not you're not going to act in a way, behave in a way that's ethical or even uh, um, even constructive in any way, shape, or form. And to your point, I did want to mention. I don't mention mention him in this book. I mentioned him though in my other article. Um, that Abdul Hamid Abu Sulaiman, who passed away, I believe, a year or two ago, um, wrote this small book called Meryl Discord. And because I didn't really engage with like the semantics of Wadi Buhunna, that perhaps it could actually mean something completely different. But there are contemporary scholars, and I think it's important to note, who argue that this word actually semantically doesn't mean to hit, but means something very different. One of them was Abdul Hamid Abu Sulaiman, who said it means to separate from or move away from based on both prophetic precedent as well as other linguistic connotations of this word in the Qur'an, darb, as well as finally what you mentioned, um, you know, Shahnaz, which is this idea that if the objective of this verse, as, you know, evident by the succeeding verse, is to reconcile between the husband and wife, he says that's the last thing that would ever make a wife want to reconcile with her husband. 
you know, if, if he hit her, that's that's the end of the marriage. So the separation one makes most sense to me because I'm like thinking for one one twenty eight, with which we're going to talk about next um, on men's issues, right? And and as you know, the language is so similar to both men to the to the men there. If it means to separate, and then we get something like reconciliation in another verse, you know, if the men are committing issues, it's okay if you want to reconcile. And it that just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Wait, if things aren't if things aren't working out here, why are we going to want to reconcile? Wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense to say if things aren't working out for you, it's okay for you to go ahead and separate? Does that make sense? And so I, for some reason, I had all my life I'd imagined four one twenty eight to say to say things aren't working out for you. Nothing else is working, not no arbitration, then, you know, just go your separate ways. And then 434 is, you know, the would make then sense to say, you know, nothing's working. All these means that you just tried, go ahead and just separate. You know, in, in the men's issues stuff, I, there's a lot of them are talking about the woman's, uh, a woman's old age, right? Like if she has, and I'm like, wait, <laughs> what what, are you? <laughs> what, is, what is going on here? But what are we seeing in the modern, pre-modern stuff um, on issues in 128? Yeah, so really it was, I think, in this case with, um, you know, and just to kind of orient the readers with what this verse says, um, because perhaps they might be more familiar with 4.134, um, uh, I mean, sorry, 434. <laughs> um, the... Um, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, basically, uh, I don't want to misquote it, but the the verse basically says that um, if a woman fears new shoes uh, from her husband, um, that um, so it starts out saying if a woman fears new shoes from her husband or abandonment, that there is uh, you know you know this idea that they there is no nothing wrong with it if they both settle. Um, and when it uses the Arabic word it uses for settle here is is yusliha. And for those of you, uh, for those listeners who are familiar with Arabic, the Arabic actually has a dual form, right? So we conjugate the verb uh, based on if it's singular or dual or plural, which um, is is kind of creates a level of precision in the language because you know here that it's saying for the two of them to settle. That they're, you know, that they are can, can settle, and then it says, uh, khair, and that reconciliation or settlement is better. And so, obviously, for Ibn Ashur, which I'll get to, um, in a minute, you know, he has to then reconcile these two words because if the Quran is saying settlement is better, then his interpretation of settlement here could be. Uh, you know, not necessarily problematic, but it wouldn't it wouldn't fit. It would sort of be contradictory. So even though the Arabic, the Quran itself, uses this dual form to settle that they that they you know it advises um, the spouse, the two spouses to settle. Most pre-modern exegetes put the responsibility on the wife to settle that she should uh, forego one of her legal rights. They did emphasize, however, that oh she could. It, it had to be through her own self-will because it's a legal right that she's actually foregoing or waiving one of her legal rights. It could be financial. It could be the right to qasam. They talked a lot about this or al-mabit, haq al-mabit, which basically meant the right for her husband to stay a certain number of nights with her. And that raises another question, which is, is a husband's nushuz his attraction to someone else? Is it some sort of 
polygyny going on. You know, there's a lot of, like you said, unanswered questions, you know, as to, um, you know, what is, what is this referring to? Um, and, and, you know, t- personally, I want to say that, you know, as, as a practitioner, if you will, um, I, I find a sort of, a sort of a, a beauty and a uh, liberation of sorts in the fact that it is open-ended. It's not very specific, you know, in the sense that it could mean so many different things because the reality that human beings, you know, we're very complex. And if we were to think of this scripture as relevant for all people and all times and all cultures and geographies, um, that sort of openness, if you will, of what things could potentially mean is, is, is one of the factors that allows for this text to continue to speak to people in, in their lives, you know? And, 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 and so, so it, it was never, it, there's nothing explicit, but a lot of exegetes based on, you know, certain, um, based on a hadith from Aisha, uh, the prophet's wife, as well as based on um, some other interpretations believe that, the husband is no longer interested in the first wife, either because there is a second wife in the picture or there might not be a second wife in the picture. Nonetheless, so anyway, there, there's a lot a lot to, to talk about in that regards, but this is where why qasim is important because in uh, Islamic law, if a husband, and, and obviously this is based on 4.3, verse 4.3, which talks a lot about justice and being just and fair to women if you are going to practice polygyny, that they said that the wife, if a man practices polygyny, he has to allot an equal number of nights to each wife. So this is where in 4.128, this idea of qasim comes in. And that's why it's sort of ambiguous. Like, is there another wife in the picture or not? Some assume that there that there is because they note, they note this word athara that he sort of is preferring this other woman. And because he's preferring this other woman, and therefore he might divorce this wife, that she should forego some of her allotted nights, if you will. That was one of the most common interpretations, um, so that he gets to spend more nights with the wife that he prefers. Um, Ibn Ashur kind of comes forth and he's basically overturns classical interpretations of this verse. Um, and he basically says, based on, um, you know, this intertextual hermeneutic, you know, this, uh, you know, this idea of, of what settlement means here. Uh, he, he, care, he, he, he basically interprets this as a way, as a woman's way out of a marriage, uh, a marriage that is characterized by a husband's new shoes, right? That there's this disinterested husband or hateful husband or cruel husband, however we are interpreting new shoes. Um, and in order to do th- to do this, he, um, you know, he, there's a number of things he, he has to do, but one of which he brings in Maniki law, which views settlement as one, you know, that, that this is basically a female initiated divorce is one way to view the word sulh. Um, but then the Quran says, which is settlement is better. So then he uses linguistics or the the, the sign, you know, to, to say that actually the second mention of settlement is not referring to the first, even though most of the time when you have a indefinite article, uh, like in, in, in a, a, sorry, a, a word that's indefinite, and then it's followed by, by the same word that's definite, it's usually referring to the first. He says that this is, not the case and and you know basically 
provides all this uh, linguistic evidence for why that's not the case. But it's 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 very unique and it um it stands apart again not only in his interpretation of Nushu's, which is you know gender neutral, but also in um really overturning uh, classical interpretations that put the onus on women to compromise. Um, let's now talk about 4.3 on polyg- polygyny, which is the last verse that you deal with in the book. And I'm going to pull it up here. If you fear that you might not treat the orphans justly, then marry the women that seem good to you in twos and threes and fours. And if you fear that you won't be just treat them justly, then marry only one, right? And I'd always wondered about this connection between orphans and polygyny. And I, I, I... <laughs> I was hoping at least somebody would go, hold on, guys. This is clearly talking only to the folks who um, who are legal guardians of the orphans. And so not just any of you. So if you are not responsible for, if you're not a guardian for a an orphan, then this verse does not apply to you and you cannot have multiple wives. But nobody's, no. nobody was doing that. And so... But but I did you know I I did I it was a very interesting um, point that uh, the the pre-modern scholars are trying so hard to figure out this connection and the more the more modern folks have other um, issues and they're responding to the you know colonial discussions on polygyny as as it's the worst thing that the Muslims have and and so on and so um, yeah would love to hear more thoughts on that. Yeah, I think exactly what you said, you know, the modern exegetes and the way they approach verse 4-3, I think is a, is a, one of the greatest illustrations of the fact that modernity really incites this, uh, you know, new discourse among religious scholars, specifically Muslim religious scholars on this question of women and gender because of the fact and because of the need to respond to the colonial colonial uh, charges against Islam as being sort of like an impediment to women's uh, progress, um, you know, by colonial administrators, right? right? Like in North Africa, who were actively, you know, who viewed Islam as this sort of like very patriarchal um, religion that was also very disempowering to women. But what's also interesting is... Um, so they're not only responding to this, but they're also responding to, uh, you know, secular Muslim critiques of Islam, specifically with Sayyid Qutb, I would say the most. Um, and whereas Ibn Ashur, so the first two, you know, because they were earlier, obviously, uh, Abdul and Rida are, are for the most part responding to Western criticism, whereas Qutb is responding to secular criticism of this verse and other verses. And Ibn Ashur is really in many ways responding to the tradition itself. And he views himself as a corrective to the Muslim tradition. Um, and you kind of see see this, the the weight, the ideological weight um, that women and gender issues carry um, in the modern period. You, you see this specifically in the way they talk about polygyny. And for all of them, they're trying to sort of rationalize like why did God allow for polygyny to exist? Which is really interesting when you compare it to the pre-modern exegetes because they're trying to figure out why God limited. <laughs> it was really, it was really interesting, just fascinating to see the difference. The pre-modern Mufassirin are saying, why did God limit men's multiple marriages to four? <laughs> and you know, the idea is well, because of justice. And um it, what you know, reading the commentaries in great detail completely changed the way I actually view this verse now. It's exactly what you mentioned that they actually didn't see this specifically for pre-modern exegetes. This verse was not about polygyny at all because polygyny was a pre-existing practice. Um, Rather, they viewed this verse as, you know, obliging justice in in various ways. Most importantly, first justice to female orphans, 
and the fact that um, a guardian could should not marry a female orphan under his care because of the conflict of interest that would create and so that was where they saw that connection between what what is the connection here between fear of injustice to orphans and multiple marriages and then and that was one of the most important questions for them to try to figure out and so it was for them, it was not about trying to explain why does Islam allow polygyny, right? Which is very much a like the modern approach to this first. It's like, you know, we're trying to like rationalize why God allowed polygyny. And so, and especially with Rashid Rida, Sayyid Qutb, and even Muhammad Tahir ibn Ashur, they're coming up with like logical reasons to try to explain why why God, you know, had, uh, you know, allowed for this pre-existing institution, if you will, right, that, that predates Islam, obviously. Um, I, so that was really the main shift with the modern exegetes. Um, but at the same time, you know, th- there were so many aspects of this, uh, uh, of the commentaries on this verse that really completely changed the way I look at it. Because as you know, you know, in Muslim societies, we tend to look at 4.3 as a verse that allows it for a Muslim male to engage in multiple marriages and it wasn't that straightforward for pre, even the pre-modern exegetes it was more like this the central objective of this verse was to implement justice and i i believe it was a tabari you know who went as far as saying something to the extent that you know if a man can't be just to even one wife you know he shouldn't get married and that's where uh i argue that there was an indirect case made for monogamy uh by some of the Mufassirin, especially Ibn Ashur, uh, which was a linguistic argument when he says, um, you know, that when it when the Quran says Dadika towards the end, Dadika Adna Allah this demonstrative uh pronoun, if you will, Dadika, it's referring to something that was mentioned previously. So he says it's mentioning Wahida Ten. So, you know, I, I there is also an indirect case being made for monogamy, I think, especially by Ibn Ashur and some of the other scholars. So he says, for example, that um, when the Quran says uh, at towards the end of the ayah, you know, it says "Dadika," that is, you know, it's just kind of this demonstrative pronoun. Dadika adna Allah ta'udu. That that is so. I, I'm I'm trying to remember the exact translation, but the idea is that it's referring to this thing, right? And it's not indicating exactly what it is. So Ibn Ashur says that's referring to the previous phrase that says "Then marry one." And he says that is what it's referring to when it says that is better so that you will not commit an injustice or will make it less likely for you to commit injustice. So um, and there were other scholars who maybe didn't say it as explicitly, but kind of indicated towards this idea that if you really want to be on the safe side of, of, of justice, that you one should marry only one. And it was interesting the way they really viewed justice as the central most concern of this verse. Um, they brought up they some of them referenced a prophetic tradition that said, um, and it kind of I think uh, highlights the extent to which they saw justice as being not the institution of polygyny itself, but just like the idea of being just um, as 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 the central concern. So they they note this hadith, this prophetic tradition that says, if a man has more than one wife and he treats one of them unfairly, uh, that he will arrive on the day of judgment before God with half of his body paralyzed, you know, like because of the fact that he was unequal or unfair. Um, 
And then also one of the one of the things that I I personally um sort of struggled with was how to translate this word uh So in the Quran it says, if you fear you will be unjust to orphans, then marry uh, those women, I translate it as those women made lawful for you. But if you notice, a lot of translations actually translate it as women who are pleasing to you. Um, but again, engaging with the tafsir literature completely changed the way I viewed this verse and specifically this phrase that it wasn't saying marry other women who are pleasing to you because of course a, hus- a man is only going to marry presumably someone who is pleasing to him right not someone who's repulsive to him um but rather it's really talking about um you know creating categories of 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 legal um you know prospective spouses versus prospective spouses that are not legal for you including female orphans and he also found it really um your discussion where you're talking about Ibn Ashur's um so his support, his endorsement for the personal status law in nineteen the nineteen fifty six personal status law, which um prohibits polygamy. So in other words, to reconcile his like his interpretation, because he's not saying the Quran is prohibiting it, but he's then supporting a legal prohibition against it. And then you discuss why, you know, that's still that's still um it's not a contradiction because for, for him, it's like an authority, a legal authority can prohibit it, but he can't, you know, he can't be like the Quran is prohibiting. But also like, um, and and uh, was he one of, was he a child of a polyg- or was was his dad a polygamous man? Was that? Yeah, it was Muhammad Abdul. And I, and I thank Abdul. you for mentioning that because I forgot to mention, this is actually really important, that Muhammad Abdul was the only one of the four uh, modern uh, exegetes who really argues for reforming the law. It's like in his commentary. He argues that 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 polygyny and uh, today the way it's practiced today creates um you know harm and he said it's 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 known to all uh legal scholars that uh one of the objectives of sharia is to actually remove harm yeah. and he says that you know and and he brings forth he doesn't talk about his own personal background but he does talk about what he witnesses as a judge and he says he witnesses all sorts of crimes and he mentions them like forgery and merger and theft. He said all of these crimes were a product of somehow had to do with a polygamous marriage. Um, but then I also know that it was interesting that he also blames the negative effects of polygyny on the co-wife who breeds like this hatred in her children of the other children, which I found interesting. And it made me kind of wonder, you know, of course, this is all sort of, um, uh, just speculation, but it made me wonder, like, to what extent was this influenced by his own upbringing, you know, because he did come from a polygamous, uh, or had, his father had married more than one wife. Yeah, with Ibn Ashur, uh, you, as you noted, it was sort of this enigma that he, you know, he stood by Habib Rogeba when he signed into law the most radical, like, family law reforms in the Arab world, outlawing polygyny. Um, but yeah, in his tafsir, he's he's very sort of, like, neutral about it and, in fact, you know, brings up uh, reasons why, what, what are some of, like, benefits, um, you know, for human societies, right, in, a, in an attempt to sort of rationalize it. Um, and so... I, I think there were a couple of reasons uh, for his support, and one of which is really supporting the national independence of Tunisia. At that time, it was just the courts were just gaining their independence from the French. Uh, also, 
Uh, it was, I think, an attempt to sort of preserve the role of religion in the state. You know, again, you know, these were very, very volatile time periods in the Arab world in specific with new forms of legislation, um, you know, new uh, sources of legislation as well and new um you know, sources, uh, just an entire new system, right? Legal system, political system, et cetera. Um, so it was sort of his his way to sort of preserve the role of religion by offering this flexible position. At the same time, you know, in defense of him, the way he approached it was that polygyny is mubah. It's not a fuddled, like polygyny is something that just permissible, but not an obligation. And so therefore the, the, the um, ruler in his perspective you know, had the right to abolish something that's just permissible for a greater benefit, for a greater objective, right? So it's not, but when it came to Bergeba later on trying to ban something that Muslims viewed as obligatory, which is a fasting in Ramadan, he stood up against him and then he was um, actually uh, dismissed from his job. Did any of them read, um, I'm trying to find my verse on, you can never be, okay, for 129. So did anybody read uh, 129 with 43 in such a way that they came to the conclusion that 4129 is at least implicitly telling us you can never be just, because you can never, because you're inherently incapable of being just two wives, your wives equally, therefore, polygyny is prohibited. <laughs> Or that's a that's a more recent thing, right? I I, I want to say. I no, I, I think you're right. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure if I if my memory serves me correctly that Muhammad Abdul uh, mentioned 129, yeah, because he really does take this strong position against polygyny. So like, the, so Abdul who says, um, he he invokes for 129 to say that it's you know clearly you have to be just to the wives, and because you're not capable of justice to women, therefore. It's at least being discouraged. But does anyone actually come out to comes out? Does anybody come out to say it's this is an implicit prohibition? Not even just a discouragement, just as an implicit prohibition. Um from the scholars I looked at, no, none of them um, you know, yeah, yeah none of them look at 129. But uh, to be fair though, I don't look at the tafsir of 4129. I only right. look at how so yeah, but I only look at the way it connects to 43, but they do mention really um this idea that if a man cannot be just that it is it is prohibited for him um if he's unable to be just and um so that was one of the interesting things in terms of it it changed the way i viewed um you know the way pre-modern scholars were really looking at this first like it wasn't even about polygyny for them it was about something much greater than polygyny and and it's the prevention of harm. And then I, I mistakenly said that for the the last verse that we just discussed was uh, your your last one in the book, but I know it's two twenty eight or of Al Baqarah. So two two twenty eight. Um, at the question of the degree uh, that men have over women. I'd love for our readers to at least get a sense of what the divergences are in in the different um uh, time periods. Yeah, so um, you re really, in this case, this is, was one of, one of the few cases where Sayyid Qutb's interpretation really stood out uh, in contrast to the other uh, three modern scholars. And he um, interestingly applies a legal hermeneutic by, you know, looking back at the legal context of this entire verse, which is verse is basically describing 
a legal situation in which a husband has pronounced a unilateral divorce. So the following verse, uh, 229, is when, you know, discusses a female-initiated divorce. But in this case, it's al-mutallaqat, right? So it's those women who have been divorced. So it's really looking at a male-initiated unilateral divorce. And it's describing, you know, sort of the legal procedures that happen after thereafter, which is that a, there's a waiting period. And what happens in this waiting period? Well, a wife should concede could should uh sorry be forthcoming she should not conceal uh whether she's menstruating or whether she's pregnant and then the husband during this waiting period has the right to revoke the divorce that he had pronounced right so this is like really important to note because in islam there are revocable divorces and non-revocable divorce so this verse 228 is is referring to revocable divorces and in, in fact this entire category of revocable divorces comes from this verse because it talks about uh, and their husbands have the greater right, right? And it's really interesting because it uses this um, uh, form that says the greater right to take them back. A lot of scholars were saying, okay, the greater right than who? So this is where Sayyid Qutb's interpretation is really interesting because he says, well, when then, then at, towards the end of the verse, it says, and men, so it, it, there's this phrase that says, and men and women, sorry, and women have rights like those against them, and men have a degree above them. Most of the scholars, both pre-modern and modern, are looking at this notion of men's degree as way beyond just the, you know, just the marriage. Um, they will say, you know, it's it's sort of it's even beyond just husband and wife. It's sort of the privileges men have, whether socially or legally or ontologically, not all of them, but to some extent, uh, you know, this was one of the um, recurring themes that I found. Sayyid Khutub is saying this is not a general precept of men having a degree above women, but this is talking about this very specific situation. Clearly, the man pro pronounced a divorce, and now he has the right to revoke it. So during this waiting period, when she's in limbo state, he has the upper hand. He has a degree. Because if he revokes it, she has to go back to him. Now, what if she doesn't want to go back to him? Well, then she has to initiate a new divorce, a khura. But in this situation, if he revokes a divorce, she has to go back. So then he connects it back to this verbal, um, not verbal form. It's uh, not the superlative, but remind me what kind of form is it when it says the greater right, right? Because he's saying, well, here the husband has a greater right than the wife to revoke the divorce that's what the men what what men's degree is right now obviously one can say well this is still a patriarchal and still unfair uh but at the same time i think if we're to look at this verse atom atomistically right which is a critique that both barless asma barless and, and um and and amna would do make right that it's it's not fair to uh look at these verses in isolation because uh, then that if we you know for to look at the Quran intertextually and look at other verses there are other verses that offset this one right that say well you know she cannot be uh, kept in limbo state right there are many many verses that talk about you know do not make things difficult for a wife just to kind of uh force her to then initiate a divorce right that it says and other verses that talk about you know keep them in kindness or divorce them in kindness right that there's no so <clears throat> so Nonetheless, I think obviously this verse is it is clearly. I mean, it's talking about a male initiated divorce. Um, I I I think um, in that context, personally, I think Sayyid Khutub's um, interpretation 
uh, is much more woman friendly in, in my assessment. Again, my personal assessment, one can feel free to disagree in, in contrast, again, to previous interpretations, right? And, and I think it's important to think of tafsir as a genealogical tradition, which some scholars like Walid Saleh and others have argued, uh, Johanna Pink, among others, um, uh, Jean McAuliffe, right? That it's it's building upon previous authorities. And um, so if we're, if we're to look at his interpretation, I think in light of that, it is a much more egalitarian interpretation than thinking of men as just having some sort of you know, default perpetual privilege over women. That's actually an excellent segue into my last question that I was going to ask you. It's more me thinking out loud than anything else. And it has to do with the boundaries of um, of tafsir and, um, you know, what constitutes tafsir and so on. And we we're just talking about earlier before we started this interview. And I, 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 so I recognize that you're dealing with a genre, with a whole tradition. And so I was surprised because when I I was thinking um, that in the book, you might engage a lot more closely also um, some of the more recent scholarship um, or more recent, um, you know, scholarship by women on these verses. I think your explanation for why you're not doing, because you do cover, you do explain why you're not doing that. It's, you know, and and it's something like, you know, the, the you're you're looking at tafsir, you're looking at the genre of tafsir, the tradition of tafsir and so on. And then also folks who haven't written whole, um, you're looking at folks who've written complete tafsir books. So I, I see this explanation, you know, for a sort of a lack of what I would, what I think would be a deep engagement with women's tafsir, um, that just because these women or these contemporary uh, female scholars aren't writing full tafsirs on the entire Quran, I wonder why we have to limit ourselves to only those folks who who produce an entire uh, tafsir on the Quran, because, you know, it's not like we're engaging all of their tafsir, because do we need to create a whole tafsir in order to be able to have our scholarship engaged? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's a really fair question. Um, and honestly, I I wish I could have if but it, it would have been a really long book, like to have like a third section. I have like you know pre modern and then these modern, and then maybe to look at like contemporary feminist scholars. I think that would have been really interesting. Um, it just really was kind of beyond the scope. And and I think because it, as I started the book, right, really the central con- question was, you know, how does modernity impact the way modern mufassirin uh, approach gendered verses in the Quran, right? Like so, and, and so the the focus was really on this pre-modern modern analysis um, within this genre, situating situating the textual genre. But in in, in fairness, I, I, I you know I, I think it, there's a lot of value in engaging with the works of contemporary scholars who are um, you know working in the Quranic studies. I I, I think in, beyond just you know uh, you know uh, feminist scholars of the Quran, I think there are also Contemporary scholars, both in the Muslim world and uh, in the West, uh, who are um, engaging with these verses in very interesting ways. Um, it would just, you know, again, um, beyond the scope of this specific project. Uh, but I do think that I, I, I think you're right in terms of I, I think what I hear you asking is, you know, uh, do you need to have a tafsir written, like a, a text, right? Like an actual Quranic commentary written in order to have your um, voice or your interpretation engage with? And I I, I think um, I, I think that's a legitimate question. And I think absolutely not. You don't need to have an actual tafsir, right, um, p- published in order to have your um, ideas heard and, and, and taken seriously. Um, I think because initially, again, like I said, you know, the central concern is like, how has this genre of tafsir as a sort of textual commentary how has it evolved historically 
Um, and I wanted to look at kind of this construction of interpretive authority, like so looking at people who are uh, viewed as mufassirin, I guess, and who have like written tafsir works. Um, but I, I, there have been more recent scholars like Johanna Pink and Karen Bauer that are, you know, uh, noting valid in, in a valid way that the tafsir itself, the boundaries of tafsir are shifting, such as that now you have people producing like YouTube videos, you know, even Instagram videos, um, uh, you know, lectures, right? Um, also, there's, there's a lot of other media. And so this is what, you know, Karen Bauer and Aisha Chowdhury both bring into their uh, respective works. I kind of wanted to focus on um, the textual analysis of these uh, written Quranic commentaries, if you will. So that, you know, it could, could be it could be seen as a setback, but also if you're interested in tafsir studies, it could also be seen as a contribution because uh, I am sort of like centering that that genre. So it just depends on a person's interest and what they're looking for. <laughs> no, no, like I said, I was just more thinking out loud because I, you know, um, just because the, the as, as you highlight so much, the genre is developing um, and it's the fact that now we have YouTube videos, you know, on one verse alone, that's also sort of the evolution of uh, the tafsir genre. And so it's really fascinating stuff that are happening. And of course, you can't cover everything in the book. So I understand. So is there anything else that you would like to talk about or mention that we didn't cover that you think is really important before we close? Uh, I guess I'll just conclude to say that, you know, I mean, some of the main findings is that, you know, really the tafsir tradition is evolving, pluralistic, um, really carries a capacity to uh, carry multiple meanings, to hold multiple meanings. And um, it was it was exegetes belief in the Quran's divine ontology that actually opened up rather than restricted the possibilities of meaning for them. Right. So this idea that these are for Muslims, these are God's words. And so only God can have the final say on what these words really mean. Um, that It was actually this belief rather than limiting the scope of meaning, actually brought in the scope of meaning. And so I find that even though exegetes believe the opinions they are bringing forth are correct, um, that there was a sort of humility, you know, with um, this, uh, what you find this, this, this humility that, you know, uh, God knows best. And this is really um, the best, like the, the best possible opinion that I uh, can bring forth as a scholar based on, you know, all my, you know, all the insights that they have and the knowledge, but there was this sort of um, understanding that this was not the final say on the meaning of the Quran. And I, I find that very, very important to highlight uh, because for Muslims who are uh, very confused by some of the kind of really uh, rigid and totalitarian manifestations of Islam we find in certain parts of the Muslim world today, I think to see this very pluralistic spirit of um, of the Muslim tradition can be very um, empowering, em empowering and liberating. Absolutely. And then our final question as we close is always, um, if there's anything you're working on that we can look forward to in the near future, any new works, books, articles, et cetera, research? Uh, yeah, so my next book project is looking at biblical women in the Quran, uh, a retelling, maybe I will call it a retelling. Um, so that's is kind of a stems from my um, teaching of comparative scriptures. And I, I love to engage with the female figures in the Bible and the Quran and looking at them side by side. So yeah, that's my hope. So I'll keep you updated. 
Oh, that's so exciting because I'm always looking for stuff like that. And I also teach, um, I mean, I, I teach this Abrahamic religions course and I'm like, oh, I wish I had more time because I'd like to write a whole book on everything that I'm learning there and everything that I'm teaching there. So um, that's exciting. I look forward to that. All right, Hadia, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated this. And I know that my readers, listeners will also benefit very much from this interview. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to reading your book. Hopefully it'll be out soon. Hello. All right, so that was my conversation with Hadia Mubarak about her new book, Rebellious Wives, Neglectful Husbands, Controversies in Modern Quranic Commentaries, published in 2022 with Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back with another episode soon.